I think we need a whole new generation of creative people to give us the storylines for new new outcomes. I kind of borrow from William Burroughs, who was a wonderful you know friend to the project and to Echo Technics. And he said, you know, we need a mythology that's appropriate to the space age. And he further said that we're going to judge heroes and villains by their intentions towards the planet. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And when I think about our place in time from a geological perspective, as I am wont to do... One of the premier events of the 20th century of our lifetimes is the creation of Biosphere 2. It was the first legitimate attempt to reproduce the entire living architecture of our planet in a new vesicle. The first cellular division, the first mitosis of the biosphere, at least the first that I'm aware of. This was one of the most impressive things that humans have ever done an entire living planet inside a building in tucson arizona or just outside it actually in oracle arizona which for poetic purposes is really vastly better and while most people are only aware of biosphere 2 from the mass media smear campaigns that followed the closure of its first experiment its experiment in closure sealing eight human beings, the Biospherians, inside to live together, grow all of their own food, recycle all of their own waste over a period of two years, is not only one of the most fascinating, courageous, scientifically bold experiments of all time, but also provided the substrate for some really profound and insightful explorations of human culture and human psychology. As it happens, this is the week that the group that made Biosphere 2, the Institute of Ecotechnics in Santa Fe, hosts their annual conference symposium. And so the time feels right to release the two parts of this extraordinary conversation I had with their CEO, Biospherian Mark Nelson, who just published a book called Pushing Our Limits. It's a memoir of his time in Biosphere 2. He's also the author of a book called The Wastewater Gardener, where he has applied the knowledge of closed ecosystems to the project of responsible living on the planet at large. And having walked through the orchard that Mark planted at Synergia Ranch outside of Santa Fe, I can attest to this guy's lasting influence and humble, earthy genius. I really started this show to have conversations like the conversation I'm about to share with you. Because stories like Mark's deserve frequent telling. They deserve a much wider audience than the admittedly broad audience they've already received. And as the human species grows up into its responsibility for a more active role in the maintenance and upkeep of Spaceship Earth, it really is crucial that we learn as much as we can from Biosphere 2 and from the globe-trotting band of misfits <laughs> that created it. One of the most interesting, diverse, eclectic, brilliant, talented, 
weird, wonderful groups of people I think I've ever encountered. And if I had it my way, this conversation with Mark would not be the last that you're hearing from the Institute of Ecotechnics. But before we get started, I just want to give a quick shout out, a note of appreciation to everyone who is supporting this show on Patreon. I'm about to drop a bunch of new exclusives there for supporters at all levels, a gesture of my deep appreciation for you helping me pay the rent and keep the lights on and make this podcast happen. As the self becomes more and more distributed in our digital age, so too does the responsibility of the guru and the patron. A new peer-to-peer network of inspiration and support emerging through our horizontal and synergistic interactions. So join the meta-patron, the swarm patron, at patreon.com slash michaelgarfield. Help yourself to the already thick vein of gifts there for both patrons and non-patrons alike. And also thanks to everyone who has been rating and reviewing this show on your podcast platforms of choice. It helps a lot. It is, of course, entirely free to do because after all, time is not money, (laughs) or at least the ways in which time is money are limited compared to the many, many ways that time is. So you might, as some of the other listeners of this show have, find great benefit in the time you invest in sculpting hyperbolic, epithetical praise for future fossils on iTunes or wherever. It is rewarding to participate in the creative process. And that's a really helpful way to do so. So thanks to everybody who has been. We're over 100 reviews. That's awesome. I love you. All right, here is Mark Nelson. Enjoy and stay tuned for part two of this episode coming out next week. Mark Nelson, it's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. Ditto. Am I a future fossil? Uh, I, I suspect that you are. If you're lucky, you will be, right? Or was it like only 1% of animals that ever lived made it into the fossil record? So, Well, you know, Biosphere 2 triggered my love of wetlands. So now I know I need to die in a wetland a swamp because that'll increase the preservation odds. Well, either that or I think a sandstorm, like desic- desiccation will work, or ice. Uh, I prefer desert. I'm a desert rat, too. Yeah, I, was like, I think you bet you'd have a better luck of becoming a desert mummy in Santa Fe. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a great place, actually, to, to open it up. I mean, for anyone who's familiar with you, uh, you are a sort of a... a, a, a in my opinion, a major historical figure akin to the, you know, the, the obviously much more media covered Apollo astronauts, you know, because they they like put their ass on a rocket and went out into space. But in a way, I think that, you know, you and your colleagues did something much more ambitious, uh, which was <laughs> to seal yourselves in this in this container and to participate in, in an, a a way ahead of its time experiment about 
you know, reconstructing the biosphere inside of a building. So, I mean, I guess on the occasion of your book, why don't we talk a little bit about how you got involved with the Institute of Ecotechnics in the first place? Yeah, well, that'll take us back to Santa Fe. So I was 22 years old, uh, fresh with a Ivy League degree and a total intention not to have a conventional career because it seemed way too boring. And through a, a wonderful series of accidental meetings and convergence of interests, let us say, I heard about this group uh, and they they were a theater group. But they were also um, going back to the land. They had bought some land in, in New Mexico. That was kind of a thing in the late 60s was putting into practice, you know, new ideas about how to live together, how to treat the earth better. The environmental movement had just begun. So I rocked up in my brother's VW bug in October 1969 and uh, I was about six months after they had begun work there, and to a new, to, to a you know a New Yorker, uh, you know first generation Eastern European Jew, who had you know gotten educated in New England, it was like the far side of a Martian desert, not quite <laughs> as cold, but you know clearly a uh, ecology that was completely wrecked. And when I heard that uh, the Ecotechnic projects. We we formed the institute a couple of years later, but the basic ideas were there. Was that everyone would work on ecology? That was kind of our science and environmental aspect. We'd work on enterprise, and it took me a while to understand that wasn't a job. And we work on theater as an artistic expression. Also, we may come back to that because it's a brilliant way of getting past personality conflicts. Uh, to you know, other aspects that are more essential that that uh, bring people together. So when I heard this program, I was delighted because uh, the idea of picking a career and then basically having weekends and vacations, you know, to fill in the rest of the time, seemed really arid to me. And uh, so my colleague John Allen, who, in addition to everything else, the Harvard MBA, the the metallurgical engineer. He's also a poet. He wrote a book called Off the Road, a collection of his poems. And, you know, thinking about it, well, you know, it's pretty impressive to stay on the road, to find a road uh, that takes some doing, especially if it, it's a road uh, that's not completely socially ordained and, and you're encouraged to go down the highway. But uh, that that uh, going off the road, you know, taking the uh, Whitman metaphor one step further, I think really sums up when I look back on it, what I was looking for. I was looking for something different. And I had, I had the sense growing up in New York and, you know, maybe I was in a privileged generation that didn't worry so much about careers and putting a bunch of money in a bank account. You know, we were kind of uh, awakened to that there's a whole lot more to living than the, you know, the infamous American dream and consumerism could possibly ever, even if you won the lottery and became very wealthy supply. So all of that kind of spoke to me. And uh, so that that was the core idea that brought together a, a group of about 35 people 
And in, about four years later, we formally uh, organized as the Institute of Ecotechnics. And then, so that's like the early 70s, and you don't get the biosphere until the 90s. I know. See, so when I give talks now on Biosphere 2, unless I'm really time limited, I like to start with ecotechnics because I think Biosphere 2, you know, I'm I'm glad you said it, uh, and I'll just uh, say how right you are. Biosphere 2 was seriously ahead of its time. Uh, And I think one of the problems or one of the many problems why people have a hard time understanding it is it seems to have just literally mushroom came out of the ground somehow in, in, you know, poetically appropriate near the town of Oracle, Arizona. But in fact, uh, you know, the core creative people and John Allen, who I was mentioning, who is one of the founding directors of IE as, as I were, you know, we had worked on ecotechnics for over 20 years, you know, by the time we finished and, and started closure experiments in Biosphere 2. And I just wrote a piece, actually, we, maybe we go back to it, that there are a lot of uh, sciences and historical contexts of science that, you know, kind of uh, made Biosphere 2 make more sense. But it was a difficult thing to get out through the mass media and to people who were not versed in history of science and whatnot. You know, there's something about, you know, talking about it as an enclosure. And maybe we're getting ahead of the story here, uh, but we're going to go there anyway. Uh, You know, visiting uh, Sinogia Ranch, uh, where this is all located, uh, just south of, of Santa Fe, You've got oh I can't even remember the guy's name that gorgeous library and in that library there's a there's an art book from the 1970s showing the future of space stations and this is um, I'm I'm utterly failing on the the author but this is like famous now famous like retro science fiction artwork well there are two things one is Gerard O'Neill who founded the Space Studies Institute that's the one he's a big visionary but. But also um, Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog. I think they, in fact, I've never read that, but I'm told <laughs> that it's a very key book. So there was a whole vogue with space colonies in the late 60s, 70s. There's still sort of a subculture of that. But, but again, you know, when we talk about Biosphere 2, I think this is, it's so easy to just stamp prototype space colony on Biosphere 2 and call it a day. Mm-hmm. And even better if it's a prototype space colony and anything happened that was unexpected, that was a problem, that would be a real problem if you were, in fact, orbiting the Earth or out on a planetary or lunar surface. But that's really just a piece of the uh, story. And again, mm-hmm. you know, I was attracted to Sinegar Ranch because... I love the idea of having a balanced life and doing three things concurrently, not simultaneously. So similarly, Biosphere 2, the closure was really important. And and by the way, for your listeners, because I've had people say, oh, it was invalid because the energy center the, you know, that supplied the energy was outside Biosphere 2. So maybe we should go back to a definition of a biosphere is it's essentially as close as engineering can do Earth's case, how gravity can do, it's materially closed. And that's really important. And, you know, remember all those, uh, 
you know, junior high school and high school or whatever level, all those cycles that happen on planet Earth. Well, the magic of that is that, you know, the Earth is far more tightly sealed in terms of material, in terms of matter, than Biosphere 2 was. It's incredible how... So that means if life and the biosphere has been continuing for 4 billion years, that means that life has had to figure out, you know, working with the geology and all of that, all of these cycles to keep the important elements from in play, you know, uh, regenerated and made available for new life, for the continuation. Now, okay, before we, we leave that, informationally open, and what we really, you know, one of the, the guiding uh, ideas of Biosphere 2 was let's make a new laboratory and begin the study of comparative biospheres. Mm. We only have one biosphere. And, you know, if you're an engineer and a little bit pessimistic, but it's actually a good description, we are currently in this uncontrolled untethered, unmanaged experiment, <laughs> like we are destructive testing a biosphere to see, you know, what the limits are, how much biodiversity can be disappeared, how many people and how many consumers the planet can, can uh, support. So comparative biospheres. And so, you know, when people dwell on that, the purpose of Biosphere 2 or it's the, the judging of its success or failure is on the survival of the people inside and whether it worked perfectly, you know, from the get-go. That's really missing. You know, we were not trying to make a model of Biosphere 2, but we were trying to make a mini biosphere incredibly simpler than, you know, the wonder that is the Earth's biosphere to begin to look at fundamental processes of biospheres. So the information, you know, we thought was maybe going to be the most important thing and of course, we had the information coming from outside consultants and scientists on what was happening inside Biosphere 2. But the data that we are collecting about, you know, humanity's first shot at making a biospheric laboratory, that information exchange is really important. And the third one is a biosphere is energetically open. So, you know, clearly planet Earth, you know, has supported a biosphere because of the sun. The sun, you know, is burning away and we're tapping a tiny fraction of that energy. Wait a minute. You mean we're reliant on something outside of ourselves? Yeah, like I know. We have but, been from the beginning, all of us. Well, this, this is the thing, you know, what was the uh, the song I grew up with? No Man is an Island. I think it was an early uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, I mean, mm. by the way, I mean, th this gets into the deeper significance and what you know, I was lucky enough, I really consider myself, you know, I'm in Santa Fe, I'm not religious, but I'll say blessed, really fortunate to be, you know, among the first eight people to, you know, have this experience, you know, being the humans cooperating with this mini biosphere, keeping all the machinery going, dependent totally on the life systems in there to keep us healthy. I mean, literally, every breath, every drop of water, every bit of food was because that biosphere was producing life support. You know, and duh, that's, that's, you know, Michael, I think you're in California. Oh, uh, in, Austin, Texas. Yeah. Oh, Austin. Okay. The Santa Fe of Texas. Anyway, mm -hmm. this, this is the reality that most humans have. They, 
if they if they know it, they only know it in a little bit of their you know the scientific oriented you know cerebrum, and it's a it's a visceral organic connection that we have. We are metabolically totally totally both an evolutionary product of the biosphere and metabolically in I like to call it we're we're in the symphony of the biosphere. You know, humans are in there with all the other species and the microbes. We should talk about how critical. I mean, if anyone's running the show, it's the microbes. But yeah, and and that's not a deprivation. This is not a, a steal against your unique, you know, contribution and individuality. But it's a, it's a reality that actually is quite joyful to realize. You know, you are not an island. You know, of course, now we know that, we're, in fact, even our organism is an ecosystem. But, you know, we are totally enmeshed metabolically in the biosphere. I like telling people that it's like the slime just got more complicated. And like every organism is still basically made out of, full of, and, and covered in the, you know, that germ layer. And so it's, you know, even if you go up into space, you're going up with your microbiome and all of your... You know, the bacteria living on your skin that have gotten inside the mo- the pod and all that. So it's like you never really left the slime. You're still the slime just talking about itself. Okay. You know, let's see. 50%. I, I, I believe the latest calculation is that we have as many microbial cells as we have human cells, a, a human organism, so-called. Uh, so 50% of my me says, how dare you call me slime? <laughs> That's, that is just an echo of the disdain that we have been inculcated for the microbes. They're incredible. I mean, the, you know, they, they started the biosphere and for something like 2 billion years, it was only microbes, man. And they did not, well, in fact, they did have crises. We get back to that. Mm. Oxygen was an early crisis. You know, so, you know, some of the slime, some of these, uh, these uh, incredibly inventive and, and responsive organisms figured out photosynthesis. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And because they figured out photosynthesis and pumped oxygen into the atmosphere, that was like the first environmental toxin. And it was, you know, it was death to anaerobes. So the anaerobes, you know, like retreated in, you know, animals, guts, went into swampy places and all that to escape the oxygen. But but the creation of the oxygen is why all higher forms of life, including Homo sapiens, are possible. You know, it's funny. I, to that particular story of crisis and resolution in the synergy between a, you know, an oxygen exhaling and a carbon dioxide exhaling metabolism, that's like the new balance that we struck, and... There's something in there that seems resonant with this myth that we act on and we carry we carry around that we're going to survive another crisis with like underground bunkers and that we're going to burrow and and survive and it looks like the burrow and survive meme has has like emerged at least a few different times you know like every mass extinction caused by a meteor obviously um but then it's like maybe it's actually just like we're carrying around this trauma from the oxygenation event and our gut bacteria like remember having to go underground to survive. And so we're still, you know, they're sort of controlling our brains somehow. And 
and there's you know they're still like well how are we gonna how are we gonna do this if our if our you know meat suits you know run away with the game and and screw us over again you know anyway that's that's a total tangent i i want to i want to wrap this back around uh to perform itself and enclose this conversation talking about enclosure and like you know to back to that issue of biosphere 2 as an enclosed system if you know looking at these gorgeous pictures of the actual building which is still there in Arizona although they you know they opened it right it looks so much like the futuristic version of the crystal palace from the london exhibition of 1851 and that moment in the history of the modern world is the moment where science says sort of we dominate nature we're going to we're going to put a, a huge iron and glass structure over this entire park and the park will be inside the 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 building and that's the sort of a product of the first industrial revolution which sort of recreated itself in large with the greenhouse effect you know and and in a way that itself was a kind of a declaration that we're moving beyond this pre-modern idea of the crystal spheres of you know that early kind of cosmology and into a, a world where we are the creators and we are doing this thing but then a hundred some years later biosphere 2 is singing a very different song about the same kind of work or like what is superficially a very similar project when you actually look inside it's not just this pristine british parkland but it's this complicated messy organic you know it was like what five different biomes represented yeah that? and by the way you know since we had left the ecotechnic uh story with you know the band of innovators in santa fe i did want to you know talk about the progression because we you know we yeah. very early realized that if we, we only worked in one biome do we need to explain a biome you know like we kind of know what it is a desert yeah. rainforest savanna uh, marine biomes that you know in, in fact in some of the russian theorists about the biosphere you know really spell this out that they called biomes the building blocks of the biosphere and depending on your classification there's i think the simplest one might be 15 30 or or even more and uh like you were mentioning, you know, Earth geologic history is pretty wild and turbulent. And, you know, for sure, Heraclitus was right. The only constant is change because uh, and not due to any human malefaction. You know, some geologic eras back, the Amazon was Savannah. Then, you know, planetary conditions change. Continent. Anyway, so so. To further the what we thought would be a new discipline of ecotechnics. And, and let's just go back to that. You know, it, it's not as revolutionary now, perhaps because every detergent is probably called ecotech and so, so. <laughs> but, but, you know, but the idea back then was and ecologists had already begun zeroing in on it is that, you know, what was really out of whack on the planet was the whole wor world of the technosphere, there's another Russian, you know, they're the big thinkers in, in biospherics. The technosphere is out of whack with the biosphere and, in fact, is harming it. It's, you know, there's a, there's a book, it came out later, but I love it, it's called Making Peace with the Planet. Mm. And that was 
Gary Common or another environmentalist. But we saw very, you know, very clearly that was the two elements that need to be brought together. And, you know, among, I was mentioning other sciences, ecological engineering, H.T. Uh, Odom and his brother Gene had turned ecology into a systems approach. And H.T. Odom was also the father of ecological engineering. And, you know, ecological engineering, appropriate technology was just starting to raise its eye, ecotechnics. They were all kind of expressions of let's figure out how to, in practice and, and in, you know, developing the theory, how do we go into different uh, biomes? And we, so we wanted to have a representative series of projects, including the World Ocean. That's when the Heraclitus, the research ship of the Institute was built so that we can get hands-on experience in these fundamental building blocks of a biosphere. Now, from the you know reverse engineering type thing, if you wanted to have a cadre of people who would have the necessary practical knowledge, would have convened conferences to, to meet the really leading you know, engineers, scientists, thinkers, artists, you know, who deal with all of these biomes and they're, they're faceted, that was kind of the preparatory uh, work of the Institute. So Heraclitus had been operating for a decade and a half. I went to Australia you know, near the end of the 70s to begin one of what was then two tropical savanna projects. We have the Puerto Rican rainforest project. So, you know, again, you know, Biosphere 2, you know, to a lot of people, oh, isn't that interesting that, the, you know, these people had the idea that a mini biosphere would have a series of biomes. Well, yeah, except that was, you know, we'd had that insight even before we thought about comparative biospheres and, and making a new type of laboratory. So that was all preparatory work for it. This, how early did this idea for Biosphere 2 actually emerge in this process? And like, or what was the sort of unifying vision? Because, I mean, like, like you said, <laughs> you go to visit Synergia Ranch and there are these, these like tokens, uh, you know, photos and, and evidence of this extraordinary worldwide network of projects in London and Australia and Ecuador. And like you said, Heraclitus, which I knew about even before uh, I met anyone involved in this. You know, I had a friend go out on the Heraclitus in 2008, which to me still seems like the coolest thing in the entire universe. This this converted like the salvaged Chinese like was it like it's it's a steel hold junk right and it's been going around on scientific research expeditions since sixty yeah, nine. It's salvaged because it probably looked ancient from the day it was finished, but in fact it was it was built from scratch. And, and I, I should actually throw in here because all of our projects before Biosphere Two were almost by intention pretty low profile, you know, because they were they were our laboratories, our laboratory in the rainforest, our laboratory. And the Heraclitus had the idea not only of being a ship, an ocean-going Chinese junk that could visit all the world's oceans, but also we'd create sea people, people who are really, the, that, their home is the sea. And there are sea cult, people cultures all over the world. So, you know, all of these projects are very cool. And because, you know, we were a group of mainly pretty young people, just like the NASA engineers in the 60s, you know, how did NASA do Apollo? Well, you know, they had a national commitment, a space race with the Soviets. But I think it's really interesting. People have calculated 
the average age of a NASA engineer during the 60s was like 25. Jesus. And these weren't, they, weren't, they weren't worried about making mistakes and being chewed out and losing their job. They were motivated to make history. And I, I found it really interesting. You know, so at a lot of those conferences, we'd met, you know, a lot of the, the pioneers and great space people. And they they partly, you know, burned the fuse because they said, look, astronautics is we're doing these amazing robotic and manned missions. You know, rocketry is really developed and we we haven't a clue how to live in space. Space support, you know, is really lagging behind. So, you know, and we did our research and we discovered, although they seem to be inaccessible, that the Soviets, the Soviet, you know, the Soviet Union were the leaders at the time. But, you know, it was clear that, hey, why not do this? So, uh, you know, people describe different moments. I like the story that one of my crew members, Jane Pointer, tells that we had, we had a conference in 1982. It was called the Galactic Conference, and we had Bucky Fuller there. And we were already starting to talk about, we had our architect was told to design a spaceship. And because he came back, you know, he came from a wonderful background of working with, with Frank Lloyd Wright and Bruce Goff. But he came up with an Adobe uh, spaceship. <laughs> that was, and, you know, NASA engineers would have a coronary for sure, you know, because every ounce that you lift off of. Uh, but, I, but it was kind of a, you know, it was kind of an interesting thing. And we had jam sessions. Okay, so the Adobe was a really impractical way of, you know, protecting the the the, uh, col the orbiting colony or whatever it was from space radiation. But we had dram sessions on how would you create, you know, life support systems in there that were robust, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, when we looked at the field of space colonies back to that point, you know, Gerard O'Neill, I, mean, I had the great pleasure of presenting um, several times at his Princeton Space Studies Institute. But frankly, and I tell him that, uh, his his uh, space colonies looked like he took a suburban New Jersey, you know, Main Street and stuck it into space. And it's still that's still the vision populating like science fiction movies like Elysium, you know, like that that film where all the the rich people are living in their sort of like Silicon Valley in the sky. And they've they're all in these nice sort of, you know, right. open floor plan houses. And it's like, come on. Well, I know. I mean, you know, there's another digression, but what drives me crazy about sci-fi movies is got these huge populations and they usually never even talk about how they're providing life support. And usually there's not one plant, not even a house plant. <laughs> around. So magically, apparently, and maybe this is back to the illusion that humans are a complete package. We don't need no stinking ecosystem and local biome or biosphere. You know, we're fine. Just give us a spacesuit and, I don't know, a tube connected to the source of food, water, and oxygen. It's very it's very two-year-old trying to get away from their parents kind of an attitude, really. But, so, so back to closure. Yeah. So closure is really interesting. If we had been porous, we wouldn't have had the, you know, the, what people remember about Biosphere 2. In addition, we should go back to the beauty of the architecture is that oxygen mysteriously started disappearing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my colleague who helped invent a lot of the engineering, Bill Dempster, you know, has produced some graphs. And if we were leaking like NASA facilities, 
do, we literally would not have seen that we were losing oxygen because it was happening very, very slowly. Very, we were losing like a quarter of a percent of oxygen per month. And, you know, air exchange, you know, Biosphere 2 was, uh, was a marvel on many levels, but the engineering, you know, it was again, it was like the NASA, <laughs> the NASA engineers as we got this group of people, including some of our own people, you know, and we set them impossible goals. You know, here's this three acre, 75 foot ceilings in the rainforest, for example, glass structure sitting under the Arizona sun where it'll, it'll get 110 and it'll get below freezing. You know, we had snow outside Biosphere. And how do you make that thing virtually airtight? That was just the beginning of it. So I, I always like to say, and there's a whole segment in that pushing our limits about it. The first rebellion at Biosphere 2 is the engineers looked at the, at the architecture plans <laughs> and they said, this is nuts, man. You know, this is going to be so difficult to build and it's going to cost so much more. Why don't you just do a big box store? So, you know, just imagine that timeline if we had agreed. So we're going to build a first man, you know, human made, first designed biosphere. And it's going to look like a Walmart. <laughs> Would that fight? You know, I mean, I can't imagine. It doesn't that. really like stir the imagination. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And, you know, and so the architects, and, and this is Margaret Augustine and Phil Hawes, and 20 or 30 people, you know, computer graphics and whatnot. But they basically made Biosphere 2 an homage to world uh, architecture, you know, from the Babylonian vaults that covered the, the agricultural system to the steppe pyramids, you know, from Egypt and, and uh, Mesoamerica to the geodesic domes that cover the the lungs so the lungs by the way i think it's worth making a side note about this because i got to go on a tour of the the sort of laboratory microbiosphere setup and i think it's worth explaining to people how you were able to keep that that yeah. air pressure and, and freddie's work and all that okay you know it's, a, it's actually a good segue about the number of amazing engineering problems, challenges we set our engineers. So, okay, so if you can actually make, and this, this took a huge investment, a number of failed attempts, you can figure out how to make this huge structure virtually airtight. The consequence is, inside, we, we're basically temperate to tropical, rainforest, fog desert from Baja, etc., we're going to have a different pressure inside Biosphere 2 than the outside. As I was saying, you know, it's just the, you know, high mountain desert of uh, Arizona. So a structure that flimsy and we needed to have a glass because we wanted to be basically it was powered. The plants were powered by sunlight. That would mean that that system would implode when the air pressure was less inside than outside and explode. So to compensate for that, we'd either have to, you know, make the outer outer structure, the skin of Biosphere 2, so uh, strong that it would have increased the price immeasurably and it would have reduced the sunlight in. So again, out of the box uh, kind of thinking, this is Bill Dempster's genius. You know, one of the, the solution he came up with is we had these two massive air ducts that went to... Uh, structures that had a 
rubber membrane on a steel frame. And they, they were in a chamber, you know, covered by the geodesic dome, but the geodesic dome wasn't the, the lung that could rise when the pressure inside needed to expand the air and could go down. And each one of those membranes, if memory serves me right, was more than 10 tons. So daily, you could see in Biosphere 2 the power of air because that would go up and down 15 to 20 feet between day and night. So brilliant thing. And so because those chambers, the variable chambers, you know, were kind of like a bellows or, you know, they would go up and down. You know, they, they came to be called lungs, but it's a misleading term because the human lungs, in fact, bring in outside air. Right. These these enable the pressure differences to not explode or, or implode uh, the biosphere to itself. More like the swim bladder in a fish kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's something about that, uh, that you talk about the convergence or the, the sort of reconciliation of the biosphere and technosphere. And there's another visionary architectural project in Arizona, right? Arcosanti, which also looked at how do you build a, a city? How do you build a structure that is operating as a single organism. And it's, I, it's, I think it's just worth noting that it seems as though that the line of thinking here is living buildings, that the, the technologies are themselves somehow alive, if only sort of metaphorically, like if only like loosely, like we're calling it lungs. I, I think Arcosante was also impelled by the idea that to counteract suburban sprawl, uh, yeah. Let's build a, was that going to be a half a mile or a mile high? I mean, a number of architects have come up with that idea. And I understand, although personally, I'm not sure I really want to live in a giant ant mound. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but it, you know, it's, it's worth saying, you know, because, uh, and in fact, Paolo Soleri became a really good friend, still is a friend of the Institute. And Biosphere 2, he got John Allen up to, I think he was having genius seminars and, and workshops. But I, I actually want to go back a bit further yeah. to what you're saying, because it ties into, you know, because we knew of the work of Vernatsky, and that's a kind of a complicated story. I should, Vernatsky I should, is the guy who invented the term uh, noosphere, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. Vernatsky didn't invent the word biosphere, although that was only done in the 1880s. That late, there wasn't a word for the sphere of life. But Vernatsky was a uh, invented the the science of biogeochemistry, and he studied rocks and life around the planet, and totally revolutionized our understanding that you know life. When I was growing up in school, I think they would literally say that life is a really lucky p passenger on planet Earth. Isn't it marvelous that life <laughs> happened to find this vacant uh, you know planet? that had conditions that were conducive to life. Now, what Vernatsky demonstrated uh, and, and his successors, he started many schools in, in, uh, in Russia, was that life transforms the planet. And in fact, what, when we look out, we're looking at the byproducts of life. And even a lot of them, what used to be thought of as mineral deposits, these huge deposits of, of iron, for example, used to be considered to be natural formations, i.e., geologic ones. No, in fact, 
those slime that you were so cruelly <laughs> making fun of. Oh, I don't, I don't have, I don't have a problem with slime. <laughs> well, okay, all right. I can, I'm I trying can, to reclaim the word. True, true, true. Okay, I'll hear it as juicy, juicy yes. with, with fertility and fecundity. And exactly, exactly. The return of the Black Madonna into. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. There's, there's a good myth. And by the way, in pushing our limits, oh, you know, it's kind of written at a popular science thing. At, and I, want, I wanted to do several things there, by the way. I know this is not depression. We're going to get back to the noosphere. We can but take I, a nonlinear path. It's, I wanted oh. to pull together really all of the historical context, the science, what it was really designed for, what we learned, and then to look at the implications for, as I say, our current assault on our global biosphere, which you know has become front and center, you know, front page news, and it wasn't that way 30 years ago when we were designing Biosphere 2, uh, and also digest the experience. And, you know, there's a few chapters in there, yeah, both about, I think it's gotten way too much play, the, the group dynamic tensions, that's to be expected. And in fact, if you're honest about your extended family, your workplace, you know, any human group, I've never seen a human group, including ecotechnic groups. I mean, we have dysfunction just, it abounds. It's just part of the human ecology. But the thing is that, like in Biosphere 2, if you have a group of people with all of their warts and personality conflicts and dysfunction who can see a unifying purpose, and I think that's what held the Biospherians together. So there's a, you know, to my mind, the more unexpected was that we didn't sabotage the Biosphere and each other out of sheer subconscious, you know, hatred or whatever, the the pressures of being in the media eye and having a power struggle. And then I have a chapter on this awesome uh, experience. I shouldn't say it was unexpected because I had 24 hours in our test module that gave me a taste of it. But that amazing experience of viscerally, organically feeling so connected to the biosphere. So there was a lot of reasons. And I, and I also very much wanted that book to speak to artists and myth makers and musicians because I think we need a whole new generation of creative people to give us the storylines for new new outcomes. I kind of borrow from William Burroughs, who was a wonderful you know friend to the project and to Ecotechnics. And he said, you know, we need a mythology that's appropriate to the space age. And he further said that we're going to judge heroes and villains by their intentions towards the planet. So I think, you know, in addition to all the science and being creative and, you know, whichever which way uh, you've got gifts, we have a desperate need of new storylines, new artistic expressions, you know, new myths to be forged through the arts. And to me, that's very much like if you look back at Native American and indigenous cultures, the famous pagans that get such a bad name, they almost get as bad name as, as slime mold. But, you know, all of those cultures were so much in contact with the earth that it was second nature that they ascribed godlike powers, mother nature. The powers of nature were really revered and respected. And I think that is also part of the equation of how we get to more optimistic futures. So this is a really good point to bend into the topic you foreshadowed earlier about the role of drama and theater 
in mission crews, in like social cohesion, and as well as in sort of the complete human experience that includes science and all this other stuff. And I'm, uh, you know, both as looking forward into the future of multiplying biospheres and, and how we're going to have to rethink how we are in relationship, but then also just sort of speaking to, because I'm not as familiar as I'd like to be, but I know that John Allen has this very rich and deep and complex perspective on how drama is involved in this and that it remains a very active part of the daily lives of everyone at the ranch. And so I'd, I'd love to hear you speak to that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on another uh, book, kind of a memoir. And every time I get to that story about the three lines of work, I have, I have to laugh because, frankly, I didn't think I was a theater type. I wasn't a theater major. I mean, my parents dragged me, too, and I would always seek out really great theater. Uh, you know, so I kind of approached it. I figured, well, I can, you know, I'll put up with it because everything else seems so interesting. And the more, you know, of course, we, we were having a very, you kind of a unique blend, again, a synergy synergy, by the way, uh, for your, your audience, we didn't define it. That's the word that gives synergy a ranch. It's named synergy. And it's a word that existed before, but Bucky Fuller really popularized it. A synergy is something where the sum of the parts is less than the totality. And, and in fact, the sum of the parts do not even predict the properties of the totality. So it's important. So, so in a way, our theater was a synergy because we drew from Asian dance drama. We drew from Artaud, Brecht, Stanislavski, you know, the European avant-garde. And the deeper I got into theater, and, you know, we did a mix of doing in fresh translations classic works and kind of new ones that John was was an anonymous author, but sometimes it was improvisational theater because every one of our projects had its own studio theater. And when I lived in the Outback, it was part of the magic. You know, it was really difficult. It was, you know, Crocodile Dundee, but not on a glossy, you know, movie screen. It was kind of, you're thrust in there, you know, it, it was pretty wild. And so we naturally turned, because life was full of threat and peril and difficulty, to making these really hallucinogenic uh, outback comedies. And the, the wonderful thing about theater is that, you know, as Bresh said, a theater without an audience is a fiction, is, is, it wouldn't mean anything. So we would take our, our productions and we were part of the local town's, you know, annual festival. We'd go to aboriginal camps and put them on and, and had the great honor on more than one occasion of the Aboriginal audience spontaneously getting up and doing a corroboree. Okay, you've shown us your theater, you know, here's ours, here's ours. or to mining camps, etc. And, you know, the, everybody gets, you know, theater is a wonderful medium, especially if you're incorporating a lot of gesture and dance. For example, the Heraclitus, when it went down the Amazon, did a original play called the something like this, the dance of the seven deadly sins. Mm. And they did, they did it without, you know, the, the, you know, lust, sloth, gluttony, you know, all the good ones, all the, <laughs> the great standard emotions, but they did that play for Indian audiences and town audiences without words. And it was a great checkout. You know, a lot of these indigenous people have seen good talking, you know, Westerners come and next thing you know, they've, 
they've ripped you off, made you into slaves and <laughs> taken you. Yeah. So, you know, theater also reveals being. So I, I became uh, it, it became one of my most favorite things, actually. And we had a touring company for many years, Theater of All Possibilities, that used to do tours in the United States. We had a touring bus. You know, we're all living on very little means. I think we didn't fully sound out why we built the Heraclitus in the way that we did. But we'd sleep in the back of the theater and, you know, camp out in the bus. And we had a kitchen on board. But I began to get this real sense that, in fact, we are all, you know, Shakespeare said it best. You know, all the world's a stage and we have many roles to play. So, you know, when you start to really get into the metaphysics and the reality of theater, you know, Michael, you're playing podcast host. <laughs> I'm playing, you know, semi-famous uh, guy who did <laughs> interesting that's, you know, giving an interest. You know, we play all these roles. And the point being, you know, so there's there's something that's called in-life theater. And in fact, I was really amused. I mean, you know, I think by answer two, we used to minimize how radical and revolutionary it is. So now I feel totally free <laughs> to emphasize it. And and I remember, you know, in the, the negative uh, media stories was these aren't scientists. These are recycled actors from New Mexico. <laughs> well, in a way, Biosphere 2 was an in-life production. So, yeah, I mean, we could have made a Walmart. That would have been really a different experience to be inside of for two years, I'll tell you. Uh, or we could have not had the jumpsuits. That I, hear, I hear people... But we only use those jumpsuits when there were a lot of photographers around. When we went out, you know, doing our three or four hours in the agriculture, we didn't have those pretty jumpsuits on, I'll tell you. But, you know, I mean, a certain amount of theater, we are involved in it. I mean, I play a role as the partner to my girlfriend, to the father, to my sons. You know, we play many roles in life. So what I began to you know, appreciate was theater is a means of getting some distance and understanding the dramas that you're in, the roles you're playing with an idea. Again, nothing is fixed in life. Maybe I could pick better dramas. Maybe I could pick you know, more interesting plots. Maybe, you know, I'm playing the same stupid role because I'm socially conditioned to do it. You know, for example, I grew up in a Jewish family. I can play really well the studious intellectual. And I'm not really an intellectual. I mean, I, I don't, you know, Thinking is hard, but pretending to think, I can do that really well. <laughs> and, you know, that was, you know, the price of admission my, to my family. All yeah. the boys become professionals and doctors. Yeah, so, so the point about theater is that it's very profound. And, you know, so you can use it. And I love theater actually on a stage. But there is a certain reality to it is the human drama. It's the human comedy. It's the human epic. It's the human melodrama it's the human you know mystery drama where you're condemned to starve in the midst of plenty and there's another really deep one which i think you know goes back to mindfulness which is now the buzzword of the, of the moment right and how great is that that people are using words like sustainability and mindfulness but there's there's a certain very fundamental thing an actor acts so he learns to use his organism he you know improves his not not gymnast and not Olympic athlete, but to use your body to express. He learns to, you know, be able to work with and let loose his emotions. He learns voice and how to deliver a speech and be coherent and do that on your feet at the drop of a hat, literally in an acting class. Mm. So 
in a certain sense, and you can apply this in my life, how much today have I been an actor and how much the opposite of an actor is a reactor? And again, I think great nature, you know, we're, we're put here. I think we have enormous potential, but really nature just wants us maybe to not destroy the biosphere and create some offspring. (laughs) (laughs) But, but there's so much more that you can do. So, so, you know, this whole acting thing is is very profound and, and, you know, almost every acting tradition has this idea too, that you leave your baggage, you leave your everyday social personality at the door and you step into a magic space where I can become, you know, I played Horatio in Hamlet. Maybe someday I could actually play Hamlet, but, <laughs> but you, you know, so you can take on roles. Yeah. I have some friends who say Bias River 2 was John Allen's greatest theater production. And in a way that if it's used dismissively, it's not true, but in a way it was. And we didn't realize, we really thought that was going to be a quiet research facility. We'd make back the private investment by selling it to Disney or Tokyo or London, where, you know, gazillions of people would come to see, you know, this mar- this marvel and interesting laboratory. You know, there's two things there. One is that it, it seems there's a, a functional utility about stepping outside of yourself when you're locked in a box with seven other people for two years, right? Or like that you're on the Mars mission or whatever, that kind of proximity, the tightness of that social molecule tends to like reify people's identities and attachments. How did you find yourselves using theater as a practice while living in Biosphere 2? Like how was, I mean, obviously it seems like it's woven into the whole life, but how was it helping with the interpersonal frictions that came with that kind of close quarters existence? Well, I, I think that everybody had, you know, worked in theater uh, virtually the entire first crew, you know, were rec- recruited from people who had, you know, done well at echo-detecting projects. We also send, we sent, it was an important part of the training, we sent everyone to either the Heraclitus and or the Outback, the Australian Tropical Savannah Projects, because both of them really isolated tropical conditions. That's where the, the Heraclitus was in tropical waters then. Small group, real time. This is not a practice. This is cutting edge, you know, real time ecological management. And I think that was invaluable. We also trained and it was part of the arsenal, not just from theater, but we had studied group dynamics and ways of dealing with it. And, you know, so we had I I think that, you know, to everyone's credit, you know, all eight of us um, were super committed to the project. And even when there are frictions about say, strategy and what should be prioritized, the fact that everyone, you know, respected each other and understood that if we sabotaged Bias for Two, we literally could be endangering ourselves. But we also uh, periodically spoke about these, you know, what was happening in group dynamics. We did exercises like passing the talking stick or, you know, we had a series of rereading a key book Bion's experiences in groups that I, I recommend to all your readers. It's still in mm. print, which really details the difference between a task group, a work group that's working intelligently, cooperatively towards shared goals and what he calls the group animal, which are subconscious things 
that have attractive titles like Kill the Leader, <laughs> Fight or Flight, or Pairing. And, you know, so the fact that we had put these into practice in our previous work at Ecotechnic Projects, but we use those tools inside Biosphere 2. And the big thing is, you know, even doing those periodic, we're not going to solve the tensions, but we are going to put it all out on the table. So subconsciously, because I have a friction with that group of people or with that person, I'm not going to let the subconscious agenda, which has destroyed many, many expeditions and great endeavors, let me tell you. It's actually called Explorer's Cholera. And, and it starts with cabin fever. You know, and I think we all know this, right? It was a, a North Pole explorer that was talking about, you know, watching somebody chew his rice like 20 times. He had a little, you know, nutrition trip that he was doing. Drove other people to near homicide. That's, that's his cabin fever. So, yeah, you have all of that. And, you know, so periodically we would have parties and we would have dinners in special places. We, you know, assiduously celebrated every holiday with a feast. And we all agreed, let, even though we were food limited and calorie restricted, that was the diet. You know, let's put some food aside so we can have the immense pleasure of having a day off and this incredible table of food and come as different characters. Mm. So this is the thing too, you know, and in fact, you know, I, I think it was the most profound and I had done group therapy and some individual, you know, psychoanalysis type stuff is I had to live with myself for two years. And so early on, I was the first one. And I, I know all my, my colleagues will agree. I'm so grouchy in the morning, but the thing is, you know, you guys only have to put up with it when we have our meetings and that we're working. I have to live with myself 24-7. So I, you know, I took that experience as, in fact, you know, I had seven mirrors. And you learn to, we all know this from, from our friendships and families, you learn where all the buttons are. So we would have these, sometimes it would turn into kind of a game where we'd just go around the table and people would push other people's buttons to see them react. So in a way, uh, it was an incredibly intense experience if you were motivated to look at your behavior and change it. Huh. Yeah, I think about... <laughs> was, I, was, I was talking with Kate Green uh, last week, who I also... You, I think you were on a panel with her, weren't you? Yeah, at, what, at, at the Interplanetary yeah. Fest? Yeah. yeah. And, and she, both of you have not identical, but somewhat similar experiences in that she inhabited an experimental mock-up for like a Mars colony. And we were talking about all of the things that you'd want to bring with you, you know, all the things that you, you sort of take for granted on earth that you would miss in space. Like we, one of the things was essential oils. It's like all of the specific fragrances that we take for granted that you, that would like trigger memories and that you, and I feel like listening to this, the arts, and like specifically theater and specifically theater as a way of escaping the person that you're stuck being at 7 a.m. Um, that there's something about it's not it's not just that we have to enclose a and there and like branch divide and reproduce 
the biosphere in order to make it out into this ostensible cosmic destiny, but that we also have to enclose and multiply the and differentiate the ego itself. And that there's something about adult psychological development. Robert Keegan talks about this in his book, In Over Our Heads, The Mental Demands of Modern Life, that simply living in the modern world, we have to move from social group to group, setting to setting, and we have to move through different personae in order to do that. Like that you, you, in order to live in the modern world, you have to be a different person at work than you are at church, than you are at home with your family. So it seems as though something that we will, when I look forward into what the future human being will be like, I think part of it seems to be that each person will have a plural identity that much like there's the one glass enclosure that contains all of the five biomes, right? That, you know, my, uh, my hypnotherapist friend tells me that each of us have something like seven to 12, uh, per sub personality modules and, and that we just don't notice. And it gets back to that whole piece of the relationship between mindfulness and sustainability, like not running your car in the same gear all the time. That there's a sort of like hydrogeology of the self. I don't, know, I don't know if this is a dead end, but I feel like that's a there's something in there. No, that, that's a really good point. It, it, it kind of triggered in me. Uh, I wanted to say, you know, we were also very uh, aware of that NASA had fallen a certain template. You know, let's just pick, you know, test pilots because we know that, you know, they, they're at a certain physical level. They're top of their game and all that stuff. And for some reason in that culture, of course, and I think NASA was totally on board, the less emotions you show, you know, the better off we are. <laughs> so we were kind of the opposite. And, and of course, Rusty Schweikert, who, you know, was a good friend and was on the project review committee. He was uh, on one of the Apollo missions. I think they did the first spacewalks, uh, et cetera. But, you know, I, in fact, I virtually opened pushing our limits with uh, a quote from him that when he went out on his spacewalk and there was a temporary technical glitch and for, you know, for astronauts having like 60 seconds or something without a program, <laughs> what they have to do is, is pretty rare and treasured. So here he is out there on a tether orbiting the earth at you know, what is it? 18,000 miles an hour. And he's looking at this earth spinning down and he had, you know, he went into this wonderful reverie that, you know, it wasn't because he was a good student and he had good karma and, you know, it, he was kind of lucky to be in that position. And he really saw himself as a sensing element for humanity. Mm -hmm. And, he, and I've met, I've had the great you know pleasure of meeting quite a number of astronauts and cosmonauts since we did a lot of uh, work and, and trips to the Soviet Union and they're all changed men. You know, something in that that experience and it's, you know, unfortunately, it's only what 100 people or whatever it is now who've actually lifted off and lived outside the Earth's biosphere and seen our planet from space. That is very, very profound. So we didn't know really what the biospherian experience was going to be. But, you know, it was kind of like part of our we were encouraged. And I think everyone was so, you know, I think we were all in love with Biosphere 2 and and through Biosphere 2, even more in love with our Earth's Biosphere, since it was a tiny little offspring, you know, of it. 
So we were totally encouraged. And I, I think it's the only time in my life I've written poetry on a regular basis, kept journals, people did music, incorporating natural and technical sounds in Biosphere 2, did film pieces. Our uh, manager of the food system, you know, some of her art, and we had uh, art fairs or festivals. We had art festivals and of course, we had the hubris to call them the first and second interbiospheric one. So we <laughs> we linked up with, through really primitive. We're talking ninety two and ninety three to the electronic cafe in Santa Monica and similar things like that. And just by link outside uh, on the campus of Biosphere Two, uh, you know, outside artists would present their poetry and music and and, and dance, and we would we would do it as well. And I, you know, again, you know, thinking about it, I, I think that's as intrinsic to humans as anything else that we do, celebrating our world. I mean, you know, there's so many traditions around the world. It's one of the wonderful things about the, you know, planetary dialogue that's just incipiently beginning, is that we, we, you know, we're all pretty amazing people and we individuals, and we come from such unique and increasingly hybrid cultures, you know. So, you know, to celebrate our role, that's another role that I think artists uh, have to play. So we play many roles. So, I mean, neither would I call myself a scientist, although now I have a PhD, nor would I call myself an artist, but I wouldn't say that I'm not that. It's just like that, you know, that feeling I had, well, you know, theater is all well and good, but I'm not, you know, I wasn't the kind of guy who went to the, the drama department and, you know, rehearsed for plays but we we all have that potentiality and i have to say in ecotechnics what i really appreciate is that we very deliberately we had a the theater was called theater of all possibilities we had a micro loan uh, program called enterprise for developing potentiality but when i talk to young people especially you know our culture i think and it may have a malicious intent in doing so tends to diminish people's expectations of what they personally can do mm-hmm. and it doesn't need to be world shattering but it as you were pointing out very beautifully you know we all do have all of these different personas and roles that we can play what i was talking about in theater is you know you should consciously develop those i mean that's kind of the raw material so ideally if you have six people on a space station orbiting the you know, maybe they if they each have eight or nine distinctly different personalities. You could have a lot of different parties with different. <laughs> you know, by the way, since we're informationally open, you know, unlike uh, Kate, and I think they had even the, the 15 minutes or whatever it was, a time lag from Mars. We really wanted that life to be as normal as possible. So one of the perks, just like cosmonauts, we could pick up the phone call anyone and you know especially when we're headline news you said i'm calling you from bias for two you'd blow right through secretaries (laughs) lickety split but we really wanted and you know it's a pity that the internet was so undeveloped because one we could have directly not having to rely on talk radio or media you know inter interface with the millions hundreds of millions of people who followed bias for two Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and 
an oodle of other fascinating programs, I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful. I was actually uh, going to ask you that earlier in this conversation. You know, you, you talked about what a surprise the amount of media attention that you received was. And I'm curious, what do you think it was? Because it's always something in the zeitgeist, right? There's like a, a receptivity or a sensitivity. And we're at the early 90s and there's Captain Planet, you know, and like it's the first time people are talking about the importance of recycling. And I think it's worth mentioning, just as an aside, that you also wrote a book called The Wastewater Gardener. And that this, it's, you know, that since this whole thing, that there's this, there's another act. But yeah, so what do you think it was that, well, I think it, I mean, it, it touched a nerve around the planet. I mean, and I, I always like to point out, you know, so so people said, and it almost became sort of a standing joke, that Biosphere 2 is 50 years ahead of its time. But the reality was that, you know, the, the operating of a managing company was called Space Biospheres Ventures. Mm-hmm. And when I say 